This is a download from BFM 89.9, the business station. Tech Talk, brought to you by Cellcom Business. BFM 89.9, the business station. This is Matt Splained. I'm Rich Bradbury. It's finally here. We've been talking about the horrible, terrible big tech episode uh, for the past few weeks. He relented for the good of our mental health in the lead up to Chinese New Year, but we've run out of road. There's no more fun left in the armoire of edification that is Matt Armitage. Matt. Are you happy? Well, that feels like a loaded question. I mean, what do you mean? Personally happy? Professionally happy? What exactly do you mean? Well, that, that's kind of the point. But isn't it weird how such a simple question makes you squirm? It's something that, you know, you don't oh. really know how to respond to. And, you know, admittedly, I'm asking a, a, a fellow Brit, you know, we'd rather admit to a triple murder hmm. than say that we were even remotely <laughs> happy, uh, which is kind of my roundabout way of saying, no, we're not doing the depressing big tech story this week, though I think we probably will have to talk about it next week. Uh -huh. I want to talk about happiness today. Uh, my that, word. Exactly. That thing that we all aspire to. And the thing that so many of us think that we're failing to achieve. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of the thing about New Year celebrations. We wish each other happiness and joy for the year to come. But often finding that prosperity part can be easier than finding that sense of happiness and contentment, especially over the, you know, the, the kind of bizarreness of the past couple of years. Are you happy? No, of course not. I mean, I've got to swim deep inside my bucket of personal miseries in order to bring these uplifting and enlightening shows to the world. But, you know, I'm selfless and humble enough to make that sacrifice. Is the idea to bring people down so that they feel better simply because the show's over? Well, that does sound like an approach I take, I've got <laughs> to admit. But no, um, no, this is actual science and research-based stuff about happiness. Uh, admittedly, you know, we do something like this most years. We have a kind of update on where the, the science of happiness is. Mm. We've kind of skipped it for the last couple of years that you know, the, the obvious reason that so many people have been in survival mode. So mm. there, there are a couple of parts to this. We'll look at some of the results and techniques that we can personally follow in the first part of the show. But in the second half, I'd like to look at uh, happiness measurements for society as a whole mm -hmm. and what kind of uh, tools and policies can help nations to feel more content. Okay, starting with, a, uh, with the personal touch. How much of how happy we feel is dictated by genetics? Well, this is one of those nature versus nurture arguments. Uh, a, a lot of the information for today comes from a couple of articles I found in New Scientists, uh, one called uh, What Makes People Happy and The Happiness Revolution, both by David Robson. Now, mm -hmm. research seems to suggest that only about 30% of the variance in our happiness is inherited. So it may be true to say that some people are born with a sunny and optimistic outlook, like me, but we don't really diverge from one another too much in terms of the genetics. So then it becomes how much is uh, due to environmental influence 
and how much depends on the life decisions that we make. And of course, how can we actually unpick all of these things? You're talking about things like profession and marriage and and parenthood, that kind of decision. Yeah, you know, you'd expect the impact of uh, what smartphone you choose to be quite short-lived, although, you know, those of us baked inescapably into Apple's orbit may be regretting some Mm. of our earlier cheerleading. But Mm. those decisions may matter less than you imagine. Uh, Marriage tends to lead to a spike in well-being for a few years, but that tends to fade back to the median over time. Parenting can be a mixed bag too. A lot of the research over the years has shown that those who don't have children tend to be happier than the people who do. And I can understand that. You know, I get stressed enough about what's going to happen with my cat. I can't imagine how I'd feel about other human beings that I had some kind of genetic link to. Other human beings that I have a genetic link to? Yeah, I know. I'm in robot mode. But, you know, it seems (laughs) that the reality is a lot more nuanced, uh, often by those environmental factors. Those parental pressures seem to be most visible in countries like the US and the UK, where social Mm. safety nets are relatively sparse and less evenly applied. There's Mm -hmm. a lot less of a gap in European countries that have these wider social safety nets. So factors like parental leave, shorter or more flexible working hours, more paid holiday and affordable childcare all play a large role Mm -hmm. to the point that in countries like Spain, France, Sweden, Finland, the reverse is actually the case. If Mm. I lived in Finland, I might actually be sad that I don't have kids. You really want to live in Finland, don't you? I'm glad you didn't say you really want to have kids, but, you know, I I really do. Uh, Finland or Iceland. And it's not because Finland tops the the lists for the world's happiest country. I just want to be cold for most of the year. I'm like an overclock processor living on borrowed time. Extreme cooling could actually extend my lifespan. But Mm. how those family dynamics play out can also affect subsequent generations. So there's that possibility of a cascading effect, whether it be positive or negative. Uh, So far, these are like mostly regulatory or inherited characteristics. What about the more holistic side? Do uh, medical advances have the potential to make us happy? Well, obviously, there are a lot of treatments for conditions like anxiety and depression in development. So we've talked about the tests that are going on with certain classes of drugs, which combined with uh, talk therapy are helping patients to decouple the memory of trauma and its uh, emotional component. Mm. So those tests are showing uh, a lot of promise for things like post-traumatic stress disorders. Uh, And last week we talked about bacteriophages that could Mm -hmm. hold the key to treating some forms of uh, depression, as well as the predisposition to conditions like obesity. Now, obviously, These are more along the lines of kind of mental health interventions. They're treating conditions that may be blocking people from leading happier or at least happier lives. Mm -hmm. But despite the popularity of that phrase, there is no happy pill. And, you know, why would there be? Our lives, our genetics, our environments, they're all very different from one another. So we're talking more along the lines of uh, psychological advances. Yeah, um, you know, there are the obvious physical things, eat well, exercise, 
pursue your vices in moderation, you know, all the things I do, um, get more sleep or at least better quality sleep. Uh, that's probably my least favorite advice. It's like telling someone to relax. The, uh, the kind of people who slip off into a peaceful slumber, they've got no idea what it is to, to just lie there turning over for hours. You know, like yeah. I said, it's, it's like telling someone who's tense to relax, they're just going to become more tightly wound. But this is why those psychological approaches in the way that they change mindsets and they can break habits and form new habits can mm -hmm. be so useful. Now, a lot of them are well-known. Approaches like mindfulness and meditation aren't new, but continuing research into them is giving us a lot more insight about how they actually work. Does the mechanism really matter, though, if, if we know that the results are successful? Well, I get what you're saying. So it's a bit of a yes and a no. So there are all kinds of things in medicine that we know work, but not really why. Uh, mm. Firstly, you know, scientists and doctors don't really like flying blind. Uh, science, at its most basic, is just knowledge after all. So mm. having that better understanding also helps us to make those interventions and programs more effective. So if we go back to that episode last week, to use the analogy with antibiotics and bacteriophages, a bacteriophage works on a specific infection, whereas mm. a broad spectrum antibiotic takes out the whole range of infections. Mm -hmm. But that involves introducing the body to a whole load of antibodies that it may not need, which is concerning given that more bugs, as well as our own bodies, are becoming resistant to a lot of the antibiotics that we're using today. Yeah, but are, are we likely to become more resistant to treatments like mindfulness? I, I know it's a kind of odd analogy, so let me give you uh, an example. Uh, Laurie Santos is a cognitive scientist at Yale University, so she runs a free course on the remote learning platform uh, Coursera called The mm -hmm. Science of Wellbeing, and this outlines a lot of the current science and learning about the mental habits that damage our happiness. Um, sort of paraphrasing new scientists there. So it seems to be pretty well reviewed. And it's also a way that Santos and her team get feedback on how well the techniques work for people. So she's giving people this uh, free learning experience, but they're also contributing to her research. So I have signed up for it in the uh, spirit of research. Uh, you know, I've got to admit that these past few weeks of positive episodes are weighing very heavily on me. My huh. happiness is generally linked to the amount of negativity I spread. So we'll talk more about that after the break. But um, Santos and her colleagues published a paper in 2021 that compared the uh, well-being of the free courses students to those who had taken a, a more general introduction to psychology course on that same Coursera platform. With the expectation that both groups would improve their overall well-being? Yeah, the idea was, you know, people have got the tools and the information, but it was to see how they used them. So the key was to compare and contrast those improvements. And right. it turned out that the well-being course, with its orientation towards application rather than simply outlining the scientific approach, mm -hmm. resulted in respondents reporting gains uh, about double those or, or well-being gains that were about double those of the students on the psychology course, oh. which the New Scientist points out also dovetails with a similar study carried out on students of a course in the UK run by the charity Action for Happiness, where they analysed uh, well-being during the course and after, and they found that on the whole, it continued for a couple of months after the course finished. 
But why might those gains typically last only a couple of months? Well, this goes back to that question about can we become resistant? Do we become resistant? As mm. we mentioned, many spikes in our well-being tend to be temporary. And we'll get back into some of those kind of wider societal factors after the break. But one reason can actually become or be about becoming too focused on the methodologies and their anticipated results. So it's that balance between the techniques, you know, the the practice uh, of mindfulness or keeping things like gratitude journals, mm -hmm. they can become their own block because it's adding more pressure into your day. Uh, right. And, you know, it's kind of like looking at somebody's Instagram photos. It can give you an idealized or unrealistic version of what your life should be. So the answer is, you know, just kind of go easy on yourself and do what fits into your life and your lifestyle. Very interesting. Okay, uh, when we come back, we'll be looking for the perfect happiness index. You tuned in to Matt Splaint here on BFM 89.9, The Business Station. Stay tuned to Tech Talk, brought to you by Cellcom Business. Business. Finance. And music, BFM 89.9. Tech Talk, brought to you by Cellcom Business. BFM 89.9 at uh, the business station. Welcome back to Matt Splained. My name is Rich Bradbury, of course. Over there is uh, Matt. Um, how do you boost the well-being of a country? I mean, it, it's hard enough to make those gains on an individual level. So how do we focus on them at a national level? Well, we already spoke about that uh, parental gap disparity, that it seems mm. less pronounced in countries that have more effective social infrastructure for parents. Uh, one of the reasons I wanted to talk about this uh, is because it becomes much more of a business issue at a national level. So you mm -hmm. might expect that countries with growing GDP levels would be the ones with the happiest populations mm. because, you know, GDP is often used as a marker for welfare. If more money is being earned per capita, the expectation is that we should be living better and happier lives because mm -hmm. we can afford more of the stuff that makes lives easier. We can afford better housing, better transport, better medical support, uh, better education for our kids. But increasingly, we're seeing uh, countries trying to separate those economic and quality of life uh, markers and proxies and yeah. to introduce more diverse and dynamic tools to, ex to assess the, the happiness of their citizens. And what evidence is there that GDP shouldn't be used in this way? Well, the benchmark for this is the 2020 World Happiness Report that came out last year, mid-2021. Now, I know it sounds uh, a little bit woolly, but it is actually a study commissioned by the UN. It's been published every year since uh, 2012. So firstly, it Find, or it's found that many of the countries that top the chart actually have fairly flat GDP growth, which suggests that national satisfaction isn't necessarily linked to that economic growth. In fact, over the pandemic, many of those at the top of the list have actually experienced negative GDP growth. Uh, so the, the, the second point is the uh, long overlooked work of uh, an economist called Richard Easterlin. 
1972, he published a paper that compared life uh, expectation scores of U.S. citizens with uh, GDP growth from uh, 1946 through to 1970 in the mm-hmm. uh, the United States. Now, this is the period that was supposedly, you know, a golden age for the U.S. economy, for yeah. the prosperity of its citizens. You know, this is the foundation of that American dream. But despite that rising GDP, his results found that life satisfaction scores actually remained fairly flat across society as a whole. So there were groups that did score their well-being positively throughout. Yeah, you know, unsurprisingly, richer people tended to be happier than poorer ones. I mean, you know, it's not, not a light bulb there. moment. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so you could interpret that overall flat score as an indicator of those economic gains being spread too unevenly. Mm. In any case, you know, no one took a lot of notice at the time. And GDP continued to be used as that proxy for happiness and well-being. However, what is now known as the Easterlin paradox began to be taken more seriously from the 1990s onwards. And Easterlin, who is in his late 90s himself, I think he was born in 1926, is Mm. still working and publishing in the field. In 2020, he co-authored a paper with a a guy called Kelsey O'Connor, which analyzed data from a number of countries. It looked at Japan between 1958 and 1987, China between 1990 to 2015, and India between 2006 and 2018. Mm-hmm. Uh, and again, from the New Scientist, Easterlin stated that in all the countries analysed, there were periods where GDP, where income doubled and redoubled, but there was no net gain in happiness. And he also notes that happiness in India has actually declined as income has grown. So what are the what are some of the tools that governments are using to augment or, or replace GDP calculations to estimate well-being? There's a whole bunch. We mentioned that UN World Happiness Report. Um, that surveys individuals using a tool known as a Cantrell ladder, uh, which mm-hmm. is actually really straightforward. It asks you to imagine that your life is a, a ladder with 10 rungs. The 10th rung is the best life you could lead. Obviously, the first rung is the worst. So you kind of score your life in between. So just out of interest, what would your life score be? Go on, just oh, offhand. Talk about putting me on the spot. Uh, six, seven, maybe? Uh, that's not bad. Um, I'm, yeah, not I'm, bad. A, I'm a solid three uh, oh, after God, the uh, last few positive shows. Uh, they brought me right down, but I do hope to get back on track. There is a, another UN model, the uh, Human Development Index, which uh, incorporates life expectancy and education alongside those economic results. But it's not strictly a, a well-being measure. The OECD has uh, the Better Life Index. Now, that's more direct. It uses 11 points to measure quality of life. I won't go through all of them, but uh, it includes aspects like democracy, work-life balance, uh, Mm. those kind of things, in addition to usual suspects like health, education, you know, all the things you expect. And Mm -hmm. then there's the uh, Happy Planet Index, which has been developed by a think tank in the UK called the New Economics Foundation. And that includes many of the uh, well-being and health measurements, but it also adds in uh, things for that that take account of environmental and uh, ecological concerns. Are there any that are you know emerging uh, as a, a new kind of standard? 
Well, obviously, the Human Development Index is pretty mainstream, but as I said, it's not really a measurement of well-being as such. So the Gross National Happiness Index uh, seems to be one of the front runners. Uh, this is something that assesses factors like cultural and ecological diversity and resilience, good governance, uh, community mm. vitality, alongside again, those expected markers. It was actually pioneered by Bhutan, which has uh, issued the uh, use of GDP calculations as a marker for national development and progress going back decades. Uh, their score, the Gross National Happiness, it's been used in various forms in countries around the world, although it tends to be used at kind of the local or the state level rather than nationally. Uh, mm -hmm. A number of companies have also adapted and adopted the uh, GNH, as it's also known. But perhaps the most enthusiastic, uh, enthusiastic adopter has been New Zealand, which announced in, uh, I think it was 2019, that it would use tools like the Gross National Happiness Index to help guide public policy rather than using those indicators like GDP. Um, not wanting to put a downer on things, Matt, but this is supposed to be a show about happiness and why the heck are we talking about economics? Well, I, I know it, it does feel like we're trying to commodify happiness, but in a sense you have to objectify it at that national level. And it is an economic argument. As we mentioned before, with rising GDP, it was felt that people's lives should be better, that people yeah. should feel happier. And as we've demonstrated in many instances, they don't. So do you think then this is an argument about um, public spending? Well, partly, but I think it's really more about people. You know, many of the countries that rank high on the World Happiness Index are countries that have very high taxation. Uh, mm -hmm. And often we're told that high taxation is the route to ruin. And, mm. you know, as a result, those countries have quite uh, interventionist governments and they have high levels of public spending. But that only tells part of the picture, which is why many of those happiness calculators also include good governance indicators. Mm. So a country may spend a lot on health or social programs, but it doesn't mean that the money is being spent well. There mm -hmm. may be leakage in the system, there may be corruption. So it's all about the efficiency of that spending. Are you spending on prevention or cure in uh, your health system, for, for instance? Do yeah. you see higher education as a national resource or something that's much more of a personal responsibility? That's why you can't run away from the economics. But so much other information is involved, it's key to determining that sense of national happiness. I guess part of this is also about how we see ourselves within and as part of our society. Well, one of the parts of this that a lot of people don't like, and I'm not advocating for any particular approach here, but that Easterlin paradox that we talked about before uh, with well-being being stagnant or declining as GDP grows was actually borne out by a study uh, by the London School of Economics in 2015. Now, mm -hmm. they looked at Easterlin's original data. They compared it with measures of inequality across the same time period. And they noticed that they actually tracked one another very closely. When inequality uh, between the richest and poorest parts of society grew, 
levels of national well-being fell. And I think it's going to be interesting to see what happens in a few years' time. You know, over the pandemic, many of those in the highest income brackets across the world have seen unprecedented rises in their wealth, while we know that millions of other people have struggled to make ends meet. And we're seeing these rising levels of anger and resentment, which Mm -hmm. are being directed at companies and political figures. And we're also seeing that erosion of trust in public institutions. So it's certainly not as simple as uh, tax more and people will be happy. Definitely not. You know, uh, some high tax nations have uh, very low levels of public happiness. But Mm. what we're really talking about is social capital, how you feel about your place in society. And Mm -hmm. part of that is money and inequality. It's inescapable. Uh, You know, how do you feel about the place you live in? How do you feel Mm. about the people that surround you? Do you feel that you're part of a community, that those people have your back? Or do you feel like you're on your own? Uh, Another example from New Scientist, a 2017 study in social isolation and loneliness uh, that was uh, conducted at Brigham Young University in the U.S., estimated that a lack of social connection or cohesion could be as harmful to your health as being obese or smoking 15 cigarettes a day. So, Mm. you know, we tend to see that the more inequality grows, the more pressure is exerted on those social bonds. Um, Are there any other ways that economic growth can um, erode social capital and uh, well-being? Lots of ways. I mean, for example, if you're working more and you spend less time with your friends and family, it doesn't matter if that's at your own direction or because your workplace pressures you into putting uh, more hours in. Uh, But we've seen that pushback in recent years with legislation that prevents bosses from contacting employees outside of uh, working hours. I think France and New Zealand have laws along that and other countries are looking at it as well. Mm -hmm. So uh, rapid economic growth as well can lead to very haphazard urban planning. Uh, People move to cities or they relocate within cities. They might move into residential blocks that... uh, don't actually have the requisite social infrastructure surrounding them. Uh, They Mm -hmm. might not have public transport links or good public transport links. There might not be a lot of retail opportunities, access to food. There may not be green or communal spaces, and they may have limited access to public spaces. Mm -hmm. So then it becomes the norm to travel beyond where you live to meet your basic needs. So those community and social bonds don't actually start to form. Which in some way brings us back to the Finns. Well, it brings us back to where we started. So Finland and the Scandinavian countries share a lot of traits. Inequality rates are low. Their governments are relatively efficient. Their system of social safety nets is very strong. And part of having those strong social systems and those low inequality rates is that there already exist high levels of social trust, which a lot of economists have described in terms of a a virtuous cycle, because each one reinforces the other. Now, obviously, you can't just simply take that model and replicate it. Societies are a lot more complex than that. And it can take, you know, physical generations to create those lasting effects. Mm -hmm. And there's also a a counter argument that uh, this kind of approach could push politicians to pursue much more short-term and populist policies and thus pass on the costs to whoever's going to come next, which could then erode those gains over the longer term. But that said, 
it does look like happiness as a policy priority is here to stay. And I'll have my finished visa now, please. <laughs> uh, thanks very much for that, Matt. Thanks, Richard. I, I think you need to learn how to say um, thanks very much in, in Finnish, Matt. That, that could help tie up the show quite nicely. We'll, we'll keep that for next week, though, perhaps. Yeah, I'll, anyway. I'll, I'll come back with a welcome in Finnish next week. That's a good idea. Anyway, you can find Matt on Instagram and Twitter at CultureMatt. You can also head over to culturepop.com for transcripts of these shows and information about CulturePop and its consulting services. If you missed any part of this show, do head over to wherever you normally get your podcasts from and have a listen there. I recommend the BFM app. It's available on the Apple App Store or Google Play. I'm Rich Bradbury for BFM 89.9, The Business Station. Tech Talk was brought to you by Cellcom Business. Get serious about cybersecurity and secure your business's digital future at business.cellcom.com.my. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To find more great interviews, go to bfm.my or find us on iTunes. BFM 89.9, The Business Station.